Welcome to MUFG APEC Insights Podcast. It's Wednesday, 17th March, 2021. We are joined by Shiv Sivaraja, Head of Energy and Resources for APEC, Ian Ketterall, Head of Natural Resources for EMEA, and Isan Coleman, Head of Emerging Markets Research for EMEA. Our topic today is about energy transition, the policies and applications worldwide and across regions, and what has been the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. The following podcast is for information purposes only. It is intended for professional investors and eligible counterparties, and not for retail clients. Any content should not be regarded as an offer to conduct investment businesses or investment recommendations. Good morning and uh, good afternoon. My name is Ian Catterall and I'm head of the natural resources um, sector within Europe, Middle East and Africa. I'm joined today by my colleague Shiv, who is head of natural resources for um, Asia Pacific and Isan, who is our head of emerging markets research. So our subject today is the energy transition and without wishing to be melodramatic, the energy transition is in, in many ways the defining moment of civilization, not just our civilization in the 21st century, but I think more importantly for those to follow. Now, I do understand there will be a lot of people who will scoff at this comment, but I would like you to consider things such as the extreme weather conditions that have of late inflicted our planet. But for argument's sake, let's assume that climate change is a real and present danger. So what do we mean by energy transition? Well, for the purpose of this session, what we mean is the transition to a low carbon world, the movement on a global basis from a high to a low carbon environment so that our everyday lives are carbon neutral. So for me, the key question is, how can we pull together all of the competing strands to deliver this objective? There is no one solution to the issue and solutions will indeed vary from continent to continent. So what we would like to start off with is to ask uh, Isan to pick up the first topic, which is the policy response from governments. So Isan, over to you. Thank you very much, Ian. Okay, just to set the backdrop on the energy transition conversation, we thought it would be prudent to contextualize what are top of mind policies that have been articulated to markets to date and discuss some of the next steps and considerations in the journey and then to hone in on what the transition has meant during the pandemic last year and what we can expect in terms of milestones for the rest of 2021. So just to roll back to 2015, and it was really the Paris Climate Accord that really began to form the global contours of a decarbonized world with nationally determined contributions, so-called NDCs, to reach the overall agreement ambition to limit warming to well below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, recognizing that this would significantly reduce the risks and impacts of climate change. Now, whether such NDCs are sufficient or not to meet such targets is somewhat debatable. And given that we are pretty much early in the energy transition journey, there is every chance that such pledges could be revised in the years ahead. Now, the IEA's sustainable development scenarios has offered global markets core parameters towards the reduction of global energy-related CO2 emissions by 2050 and sought to distinguish a stated policy scenario, the SPS, reflecting the impact of today's existing policy frameworks, juxtaposed against a sustainable development scenario, the SDS, 
which outlines a major transformation of the global energy system, which is fully aligned with the Paris climate targets. Now, of course, whilst the Paris Climate Accord has developed a context towards decarbonisation, long-term strategies within emission targets are by and large nationally determined, and it is for every country to choose how much and at what speed to reduce, and there has been increasing pressure on all parties for the long-term target to be net zero. That is a balance between the greenhouse gases put into the atmosphere and those taken out. And on this, the United Nations Convention on Climate Change has set up a race to zero campaign to mobilize governments to essentially commit to achieving net zero emissions by 2050. Now indeed, once a term almost exclusively used by climate scientists, the use of net zero has in fact broadened materially in the last 12 to 14 months to feature in corporate language and government policies abound. Now, the EU in particular has taken arguably the most detailed plans on how the net zero target will be achieved through the climate neutrality law, which in effect enshrines the 2050 net, uh, neutral objective into legislation in tandem with the European Green Deal. And with such policy frameworks in mind, of course, the scale of the ambition faces unprecedented climate related uncertainty, including future demand risks, a change in returns mix for new energy ventures, involving shareholder and societal expectations, as well as the questions around the sustainability of dividend payouts, amongst other things. So in terms of the next steps and considerations in the transition journey, we would flag a number of factors. So front of mind for us is the clear pace of travel pathway and end goals by and large remain quite unclear. And early evidence suggests that multiple approaches are needed to achieve long-term transitions. That is, there is no silver bullet approach. And 2050 climate targets are so decarbonization ambitions are undoubtedly not prescriptive blueprints for corporate evolution, but rather an indicator of future actions and direction. Now, certainly one event that we would like to watch is in terms of the next steps is in, the, in the journey would be the IEA's roadmap to net zero carbon neutrality, which we published this coming May. And this will serve as the world's first comprehensive roadmap for the energy sector to reach the 2050 net zero emission target. And this will be for governments, for corporates, and indeed for investors, as well as individuals, which attempts in essence to build momentum ahead of the COP26 summit in Scotland in November this year. And of course, a key consideration in addition to the journey is uh, that parts of the oil and gas value chain may end up financially uh, stranded and on the investor. That is a proportion of corporate assets may end up being unproducible as a result of the impact of long-term demand decline, which even under optimistic or demand scenarios, long-term project financing may become increasingly challenged. Now to end on the next steps and considerations is that the part of the decarbonization can in fact yield higher, not lower returns. Now, the initial reaction of investors when they think about low carbon transition for corporates is that it will entail lower corporate returns and higher capex. But we believe that this conclusion ignores some key dynamics of the low carbon transition, namely tighter financing for hydrocarbon projects, a more concentrated group of developers for mega projects and financially stranded assets. And so we believe it is prudent to consider the opposite side of the coin. That is, IOCs could see improving returns in their path from pivoting from all companies to vertically integrated energy companies. And indeed, we agree that the investments in renewables will have a lower unlevered uh, returns than IOC's core businesses near term, but we would indicate that such returns dilution could be more than counterbalanced by the improving competitive environment in the core businesses of oil, gas, LNG, as well as in refining.
Thanks, Osan. Um, you know, really great points there. And I would just like to make three points here about policy. Uh, firstly, policy can be extremely effective, but consistent implementation over a prolonged period is absolutely key. In democracies with regularly changing administrations, this can be challenging unless there's a universal consensus and agreement to a plan. Now, this is an advantage China has, that capacity for long-term thinking and a commitment to delivering, despite who actually happens to be in office at that point in time. My second point is that as there is no global authority presiding over every country, how do you realistically police behaviors across different countries and jurisdictions? One consideration is the use of carbon tax on imports and exports. And we all know that the use of tax is well tested by time and across many nations and civilizations. Another consideration is that we don't need to focus on every country behaving, just certain key countries which will then act as a tipping point for others. If something is self-evidently helpful, we don't need to police it. People are just going to do it. And if you look through human history, that typically is how great ideas and great technologies and great movements have, have, have come about, not top down, but because it just works. Thirdly, when we talk about policy, we generally focus on obvious top down rules, penalties and concessions that will be directed and enforced by governments. And an example would be carbon pricing and tax or subsidies for low carbon emitters. That's all important and should be considered carefully, but there are other measures that are less direct that can have far-reaching consequences. And the example I wanna raise here is the example of the shale oil and gas revolution in the USA. This took place not just because of the technological breakthroughs um, in terms of actually developing oil and gas from the shale rock formations, but because of US policies, such as ease of establishing and doing business, don't forget that this was a revolution driven by smaller independent companies, many of them startups. Number two, land rights. In the United States, the subsurface is owned by the owner of the surface, which makes it a lot easier for private deals to be done between the landowners and these private companies. Number three, the ease of access to a national pipeline network. So the, 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 the network for gas and oil is not controlled centrally, it's privately owned, and you can just get access by basically being willing to pay. Um, and fourthly, uh, a fantastic US rule about the recording of scientific data and geological data, and the fact that there's a relatively open access to it. So making sure you're creating an environment conducive to allowing risk takers to take risks is just as key. Thanks, Shiv. Um, some, some really interesting uh, thoughts there. For me, though, one of the key points is how we price carbon to, sh to show a true measure of the cost of energy. How can that be established? It's very easy, and it's also appropriate to have a focus on the oil and gas industry and the switch, for example, to EVs away from diesel. But what about, for example, steel? According to the World Steel Association, the iron and steel sector is the largest direct producer of carbon dioxide in the world, accounting for 79% of all direct fossil fuel emissions. Greater, I was surprised to learn, than the total for India. And it's not just steel, it's shipping, aviation, and the cement industry for starters. So what we need is some breakthrough technologies, such as new ways to make steel in a carbon neutral way, and that 
is going to be one of the key focuses, I think, looking forward. No, I, I absolutely agree with that, Ian. You know, policy without the technology across all the relevant sectors, and that's a key point that you're raising there, that simply won't be enough. We need the technology and we need technology across more than just the oil and gas sector. Okay, why don't we take a, a change direction a bit and turn to each region and talk a little bit about how our respective regions are approaching the energy transition. Ian, would you mind uh, kicking us off with Europe? Of course, Jim. So I think Europe is quite clearly leading the energy transition and I think has reached that inflection point at which there's no turning back. And I think also that with the new Biden administration in the US, I can see rapid changes um, coming through in, in North America. And I think the speed with which the European IOCs are embracing change reflects um, a relative wealth within the continent and also an increasing amount of shareholder pressure. It is truly astonishing to see the swiftness with which shareholders have embraced the transition and the pressure that they are putting on the management teams at the IOC. But I think, in, in particularly in Western Europe, it's also a key role to be played by the financial sector. And whisper it very quietly, but I think the financial sector could play a key role in forcing companies down the path of energy transition, purely by restricting the availability of credit. How and to whom the banks will provide transition financing is a key question. Um, look, we have talked about policy, and Ian has fleetingly mentioned the importance of technology. But when we talk about Asia, we need to consider the third critical item in the transition, and that is cost. ASAN has already pointed out the bold statements that have been made by um, certain countries, um, including um, Asian countries like Japan, South Korea, and China. And I believe they all mean it. Air quality and environmental concerns are becoming as important in those countries as they are in Europe. But what about the rest of Asia, especially the countries a bit further behind on their development journey? Unfortunately, the sentiment is that the rest of Asia is moving more slowly. It's not that there, isn't, that there is no interest or recognition of the problem. There very much is. The issue is nuanced because these are developing economies. Developing economies have less economic power, so the cost of energy matters dearly. It not only impacts inflation, but affordability is a material matter, which is why government subsidies are commonplace in Asia. So cost is absolutely critical. Secondly, developing Asia is also, by definition, developing. And it is developing fast, which means they have to account for climate change while delivering transformational economic growth. So... I guess what I'm trying to say is this is a difficult problem for everyone, but it's particularly difficult or difficult in a different way for some of the developing countries. As an example, it's much harder to scenario plan for the power demand of Vietnam in 2040 because Vietnam is likely to be a very different economy than it is today. So we know it's going to go up, but by how much? How big will their middle class be? How much will their population grow? What will be the key changes in lifestyle habits? Just look at the changes in China over the last 20 years to get a picture. In 2003, only 20 million Chinese traveled overseas regularly. By 2020, that number was eight times higher. And these aren't issues the scenario planners of a country like Germany have to consider. They expect population, middle class size, et cetera, et cetera, to be fairly predictable. So what does that mean? Well, 
if you're facing uncertainty, if you're, if you're in the government of one of these developing countries and you're facing all this uncertainty, it generally pays to keep all options open. And so these countries will keep all their energy options open, especially the tried and tested low-cost ones. I'm sorry to say that this includes coal-fired power, which is still being developed in countries like Vietnam and China. The good news is that the requirements in changing behaviors of developed Asia, so those countries that are already with mature economies and um, are considered, I guess, first world, will have a ripple effect throughout the rest of the continent. In other words, the market will get moved by the requirements of the more developed countries. Now, let's move over to the Middle East. And Asan, this is a particularly fascinating situation for the Middle East, considering their relationship with the oil and gas industry. Thanks, Shiv. Yes, indeed. I think it's certainly encouraging, particularly for the Middle East and various policymakers, which are devising plans to deploy hydrocarbon wealth more wisely in terms of bankrolling the transition. But much of what we have seen in terms of decarbonization policy is far from comprehensive and remains pretty much in infancy at the current juncture with structural challenges, such as discussions of electric vehicle incentives and carbon trading schemes running counterintuitive while energy products remain highly subsidized. But efforts to reduce emissions, reduce uh, crude burn and deploy renewables are in full swing. And encouragingly, several sovereign wealth funds are playing a pivotal role in funding low carbon initiatives. Now, national oil companies across the region have had some success in reducing greenhouse gas emissions associated with the oil production, though in the absence of strong emission targets, whether national emissions continue to fall really hinges on the government commitments to decarbonize and decarbonization under each national vision strategy. Now, where the mismatch lies is that most national oil companies in the region have cut back capex as a result of the pandemic, but long-term objectives remain unchanged. And in, in essence, the majority want to increase production and on counting on low extraction costs to increase market share as peak demand looms. But unlike other integrated oil and gas entities, most NOCs have not set out climate-related objectives at the current juncture, nor are they compellingly entering low-carbon sectors such as renewables, with the front of mind still on the focus on expanding the presence of refining and petrochemicals. Interestingly, in response to a global avalanche of hydrogen target setting and funding pledges, particularly Saudi Arabia is positioning itself to become an exporter, and recent announcements indicate that it will ramp up hydrogen production to export low-carbon ammonia, though policy will have to play catch up. Now, while other countries are striving to incentivize hydrogen's deployment, we believe the market is awaiting the articulation of the supporting policy framework to bring such a strategy into deeper clarity, especially as the country's renewables supply will have to precipitously expand to produce hydrogen. Last but not least, how about Sub-Saharan Africa, Ian? On the one hand, seemingly quite far, behind, but you're conscious of a special opportunity. Thanks, Ethan. Yes, I think Africa perhaps has an opportunity to leapfrog to conventional technologies. Uh, I remember my first visit quite a few years ago to West Africa, to Cote d'Ivoire, when the busiest building in Abidjan was the mobile phone office. People didn't want landlines, and the need to establish a fixed line network was obviated by the introduction of, of mobile phones. So I think Perhaps Africa doesn't need a whole fleet of um, big either coal or gas-fired power stations. Perhaps what it needs more is a localized solar power facilities that could surely be established in rural areas to overcome the problem of 
building those large power stations and the associated issues with the grid connection. Um, so I think that whilst Africa is lagging, I think there is a, a perhaps an opportunity that could uh, help it dramatically. Turning now to the impacts from COVID itself, perhaps Isan, you could uh, have a few comments to say on that. Thanks very much. Okay, well, shifting gears and honing on the implications of uh, COVID-19 and whether the pandemic has acted as an accelerant towards a sustainable energy future. Well, needless to say, COVID-19 has unsettled everything on climate efforts. But when we dig into the data, we find that the steps employed worldwide to contain the spread of the virus has resulted in only a 7% decline in carbon emissions for the year as a whole, with China's phoenix-like bounce back from the virus being a core contributor to such normalization efforts on the carbon footprint last year. Now, of course, the pandemic was widely anticipated to shift the focus of governments away from climate change, but the annual climate negotiations at COP26, which were postponed by a year, and with it, at least unofficially, so too were deadlines for parties to the Paris Agreement to raise such commitments. Now, to the surprise of many, climate pledges continue to be announced in 2020. Officially, the EU planted its flag in the sand early in March by proposing its 2050 carbon neutrality target that we flagged earlier. And momentum was then picked up considerably over the summer with China, Japan, and South Korea all offering the same 2050 net zero targets with climate action getting another boost after green-friendly Biden became US president. Fast forwarding to now, so after a roller coaster 2020, we think 2021 will be a milestone year on decarbonization efforts with a host of important dates in the calendar. So science will be highly visible as the UN's climate body, the IPCC is set to publish three key reports as part of the global assessment on decarbonization. And these reports will be a platform to increase pressure on governments to respond to the net zero ambition when they meet in Scotland at COP26 in November. And all eyes will be on this meeting as this will be a watershed in the decarbonization set of pledges at the policy level and will address loose ends that have yet to be finalized. So beyond this very important COP meeting, we note several other issues to watch, which we will run through swiftly. So first, we have a focus on the task force on climate-related financial disclosures. Next, on carbon pricing, which is an important feature in the net zero future, which aims to capture the external costs of emissions, which are said to further be articulated with the UK, the US, China, and Europe, said to communicate the framework for carbon pricing initiatives, likely in COP26. Third, and one of the most significant policy events this year will be the unveiling of China's 14th five-year plan, which will uncover 2021 to 2025. Um, and we, we're really keen to see what the direction of how the country intends to achieve carbon neutrality through issues such as renewable energy capacity and the electrification of transportation. Fourth, a change in the political leadership with elections in the places like Germany, as well as in Japan, are worth flagging to gauge whether the speed of decarbonization implementation accelerates. And separately, Italy has assumed the G20 presidency from Saudi Arabia since December last year, with the emphasis on people, planet, and prosperity. And so the leaders' summit on the 30th of October will be a very important date to watch. Fifth, 2020 was the, saw the advancements of many parts of the European Green Deal, and the EU intends to update various policies around carbon neutral efforts, notably on the proposal for a carbon border adjustment mechanism. Sixth, and more on this uh, a bit uh, later from, from corporates and governments, 
they are likely to make more pledges in terms of the net zero in the future, but not every net zero target is the same. And whilst more IOCs have communicated carbon neutral targets, we see efforts focus on national or companies to communicate such net zero emission strategies in detail through roadmaps. And finally, we expect markets to hear a whole lot more in terms of carbon capture and storage as corporates increasingly set out net zero targets. Whilst achieving net zero is indeed ideal, of course, this is just not feasible in certain industries where CO2 free processes are yet to be formulated or commercialized. And so for some, there will be residual and transmission emissions in the coming decades. But on the whole, after the unexpected year that was in 2020, momentum on decarbonization is back in full swing. And we expect 2021 will be a pivotal year as countries live and embrace the virus post-vaccines. And we see corporates and investors alike needing to be prepared for an acceleration in the speed of transition towards low and zero carbon economies. As more pledges are made, disclosures will be improved and net zero emission targets by and large become the norm. Thanks, Ehsan. I mean, the great thing about a disruption like this pandemic is that it means all bets are off and we can all reevaluate priorities. And I'm sure many of us have done that both personally and professionally. So what we're seeing is a different language, a greater sense of awareness and urgency from all parties. The traditional proponents of this sort of stuff have obviously been vocal, but now even the oil and gas industry and the finance community is, is taking part in, in, in what is something that we all have to um, very much get behind. Now, unfortunately, um, I have to still raise uh, an important caveat, and it's cost, which is something I've already talked about. The macroeconomic climate is likely to be bad for a while as a result of COVID, so I fear the transition will stall simply because of hard economic reality. And I have to stress that I fear it as opposed to predict it. Um, the big question is, are companies ready to make counter-cyclical investments and change business models in a depressed macroeconomic environment? And secondly, are consumers prepared to pay higher energy bills if necessary? I mean, I sometimes think that consumers sometimes psychologically associate renewable energy with free energy. And obviously, that's not the case. And it's so, so critical because most things in life tend to boil down to economic feasibility. And this is especially true of the cost of energy because it is the most fundamental cost, along with food and clean water. So I would say that COVID has helped the theory. But to drive the practice, the energy transition needs to hit that inflection point where policy, technology and costs are all at the optimal levels to allow new energies to explode. Developed Asia and the West has an important role to play in maintaining the momentum for the whole world. The good news is that the energy transition will not likely follow a linear path. So we may feel some frustration as progress may seem slow. But at a certain point, there will be an explosion and take up and development will be exponential. And I think that's been proven time and time again in history uh, with technologies, especially transformational technologies. With that, I'd like to wrap up this podcast and say a big thank you to my colleagues, uh, Asan and Ian. And I hope that you found it informative. We look forward to speaking to many of you in person soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the MUFG APEC Insights Podcast. This episode is available on Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify. Rate, review, and subscribe, and reach out to an MUFG sales representative for business inquiries.